Hello, and welcome to a Flatpak History of Sweden, the podcast that takes you chronologically through Swedish history. I am Chris. And I'm Elsa. This is episode 48, in which we're going to take a closer look at the crazy stuff going on in the early 1300s in Sweden, particularly crazy when it comes to the royal brothers, Birger, Erik and Valdemar. And we'll see how Norway and Denmark got sucked into the political chaos in Sweden. Indeed, and this episode is called Between Hortuna and Helsingborg. Most importantly, perhaps, is if you're listening to this very recently to when it was actually released, belated happy Christmas. Uh, This is Boxing Day, as we would call it in the UK, when this is released. Yes, Merry Christmas and God jul, as we say in Swedish. Yes, and in Sweden today, Boxing Day isn't called Boxing Day, it's called Annandag Jul, which uh, means the second day of Christmas, or the other day of Christmas. Sort of the additional day, so to say. Uh, in Norwegian, it's actually literally called that, Andredag Jul, the second day of Christmas. We also have Annandag Påsk at Easter, so like the day after Christmas Day, in this case, or Easter Sunday, is uh, Annan Dog. Yes, and uh, we're hopefully in the UK um, by the time this is released, because <laughs> uh, it's now the 25th of November when we're recording this, so it's like almost exactly a month ahead of schedule. So hopefully, as you're listening to this, we're in the UK. I might even be at Aston Villa versus Chelsea, if I'm lucky. Um, we'll see if we get tickets or not. But yep, hope you're having a great day. And I hope I'm at the football because in the UK, Boxing Day is a really big sports day with uh, several important football matches uh, being played and uh, football all over the UK is played on Boxing Day. But in Sweden, it's another sport that dominates Boxing Day. Uh, Boxing Day is Bandy Day. And so our Swedish phrase of the week is Annandogs Bandy or Bandy on Boxing Day. Excellent. I like that one. Bandy isn't a very big sport if we look at it on a global level, but it has a long history of being popular in Sweden. Uh, Its origins are found in Russia, and it's still predominantly played there and in the Nordic countries. I guess you can describe it as a sort of cousin of ice hockey? It's played on ice and with sticks, uh, but with a ball instead of a puck. And the rules are sort of a mix between ice hockey, field hockey and football. Uh, Up until the late 1940s, bandy was the dominant winter team sport in Sweden. Uh, In fact, my grandfather was a bandy goalkeeper when he was young. But then, yeah, in the late 40s and early 50s, Ice hockey, which has a longer tradition in North America, became increasingly popular in Sweden and many, both fans and players, switched from bandy to ice hockey, including my grandfather. But bandy is still played and yeah, Boxing Day is its sort of big day to shine. Always a lot of matches on at Boxing Day. Yeah, so your grandfather would have liked it um, and he played like in the top league in Sweden in ice hockey so he was actually pretty good he did the team he played for then is now a professional team uh here in Sweden but it's in the late 40s they didn't really have 
Money. professional sports at any <laughs> yeah. level here yeah. so uh yeah it's uh cool i have some old photos of him uh when he plays in a flat cap yeah i was gonna say no helmets or any nope. equipment like that so uh you're, you're lucky if you came out without any brain damage i guess yeah but from uh, brain damage to damaging Sweden, we're going to look at a trio of brawling royal brothers in this episode. As we saw in the previous episode, King Birja was captured in 1306, and when 1307 rolls around, he's still in prison at Nishapingshus, along with his wife, Queen Ingeborg. This is after his brothers had staged a coup in what became known as the Hortunalerken, or the Hortuna Games in English. His brothers, Dukes, Eric and Valdemar, now pretty much control the country, except for the territories over in modern-day Finland. Or, well, to be honest, it's actually more like it's Duke Eric in command, the more forceful of the two brothers. He's taken over de facto rule of Sweden, because Valdemar is definitely the second-tier person in this relationship. But fortunately for Birjör, he isn't completely without friends. Even though his brothers did execute his right-hand man, the experienced statesman Mask Torgil Knutsson, the year before, King Birjör still has a good friend and ally in the shape of his brother-in-law, King Erik Menved of Denmark. From now on, I think we'll call him King Erik, and Erik the Duke and brother of the king we'll just call Erik. Or Duke Erik. Yeah. Pretty much as soon as King Erik hears that Duke Erik and Valdemar have captured his sister and brother-in-law, King Erik gets ready to swoop into Sweden, fight the two brothers, and reinstate his brother-in-law on the throne. A lightning attack to rescue his fellow king, so to say. Yeah, some good old Danish blitzkrieg. <laughs> and in early 1307, King Eric launched an attack along the Ertran River. Dukes Eric and Valdemar seem to have preempted this attack from the Danish king, though. Perhaps they'd received intelligence reports about the plans, or they just assumed it would happen as the next logical step. They apply a sort of deterrence tactic where they burn the land in the area that the Danish army is heading to, and thus robbing them of supply and slowing down their advance. This is very much a time where advancing troops had to live off the land they were marching through, so by burning that land where they were attacking, you're reducing their ability to fight. This is a military tactic that we see recurring throughout history. It's not the first and definitely not the last time this will happen. Eventually, though, even with this hindrance put in their way, the Danish army reaches as far as Bjorgesund and Erik and Valdemar's army is forced to face them. Bjorgesund is today called Ulrisehamn and is located in the west of the county of Västergötland, so that makes it a bit inland from Gothenburg. It changed names in 1741 from Bjorgesund to Ulrike to honour the then new queen, Ulrike Eleonora. Anyway, so it is here where the first battle between the rescue party led by King Erik and the Swedish dukes take place. The Battle of Bjorgesund doesn't result in a decisive victory either way, Historians believe that this is partly because the two sides were very even, 
And so it was hard for anyone to get a clear advantage. And also the harsh winter weather made it really difficult to fight effectively. Yeah, it was very cold. And when King Eric realises he's not able to secure a quick victory against the Dukes, he instead opts for a ceasefire, which they sign already on the 8th of January. So it shows you it was a really, really wintry battle mm. if they signed the peace treaty on 8th of January. His decision to call for this ceasefire can be partly explained by the fact that at the same time, Denmark is also fighting a bunch of German princes in a war down by Denmark's southern border in Holstein. He's also got a bunch of rebelling Danish noblemen to deal with at home at the same time. So fearing a costly two-front or even three-front mid-winter war and facing internal problems as well, he decides that it's just best to deal with the troublesome Swedes a bit later on. In the ceasefire agreement, they state that if the brothers Erik, Valdemar and Birger haven't found a solution to the situation in Sweden eight days before Christmas in 1307, then a tribunal of eight men will be gathered and they will decide what will happen. Historian Ulf Sundberg, in his book Medeltidens Svenska Krig, or Swedish Wars of the Middle Ages, argues that this is an example of the two brothers' use of shrewd diplomacy. Uh, this won't be the last time we see the Dukes make an arrangement that just buys them time, without really requiring them to do anything except stop fighting for a bit. And as winter turns to spring, Eric and Valdemar work on consolidating their power in Sweden, both militarily and politically. But, as we'll see, the conflict isn't really over, and soon it's about to engulf even more of Scandinavia. We've already seen how Denmark is getting involved, and on the 8th of May, the conflict climbs another step on the crazy war scale, when Norway, who are allied to Erik and Valdemar, declares war with Denmark. And this is because, remember, the Norwegian king's daughter is married to Duke Erik, so there's a family connection that way too. In a way, the Swedish dukes and Norway are both taking advantage of internal Danish problems to further their own gains. Erik and Valdemar sign a treaty with a Danish duke called Christoffer, who is leading a rebellion against uh, King Erik. And this is a classic example of my enemy's enemy is my friend. Indeed. We can only imagine what went through King Erik's head, but from what I've read, I imagine it's something like, that's it. Enough is enough. I need to settle it with these hell-racing Swedish dukes before it's too late. So he flips his strategy on its head and now works quickly to make peace with the German princes that Denmark is fighting with so that he won't have to worry about dealing with wars on both sides of his kingdom. Then, seeing as he's already dealing with Germans, he works to turn Lübeck, the powerful German merchant city-state, against Sweden. He knows how dependent Sweden has become on its good relation with German traders, and falling out of Lübeck's good graces would really hurt Sweden. Knowing that King Eric is plotting against them, in September of 1307, Dukes Eric and Valdemar agree to meet with King Eric in Erkeljunga in Danish Skorna. 
Here they're meant to sign a longer-lasting ceasefire and also draw up plans for a more permanent solution to the current situation. They agree on a new ceasefire to last a year and also to tentative peace plans that include King Dirya being released and getting to rule over the area that includes Vexhur and Linsherping diocese. The rest of Sweden would then be ruled over by Dukes Eric and Valdemar. So here we see another example of something that's become a bit of a staple in international politics. The two-state solution. Spoilers, it's not going to work. Yeah, not a surprise here, because again, Eric and Valdemar are absolutely not intending to stick to their side of the agreement. Of course they aren't. To firm up the more tentative sides of the agreement, the two sides agree to meet again. But it only takes eight days for the Dukes to break their word, this time about an understanding that they would only bring 200 men each to the next meeting. This was supposed to be a method to de-escalate the tension. But Eric in particular doesn't seem to want to de-escalate anything. No, instead, Eric and Valdemar are essentially planning a repeat of what they did with the Hortuna games, but this time against the Danish king. Uh, they plan to lure him into a false sense of security with the promise of a formal peace treaty, and then bring many more than the agreed 200 men each to the meeting spring the trap and capture the Danish king. And this would, of course, satisfy two things that are increasingly important to the brothers. Firstly, it would remove King Birger's main ally from the scene, and secondly, it would greatly please the Danish rebels that they're now allied with and pave the way for future cooperation with them. However, King Eric seems to have had decent intelligence sources, and so he hears of the brothers' plan in time and flees the scene at Erkerjunga before the next meeting. This is a big political win for the Swedish dukes, though, as they didn't have to sign the formal peace treaty with Denmark, and they can use this incident at home to persuade the rest of the Swedish nobility that might be doubting their rule that the Danish king wasn't even serious enough about peace to bother turning up, so we should, we should listen to them. Having been forced to shelve their plan to uh, capture King Erik, 1307 becomes 1308, Whilst things haven't exactly gotten worse, uh, the dukes still haven't been able to move the situation forward in Sweden. They are still seen as usurpers by a lot of people and haven't been able to get people to fully recognize their authority as wannabe kings. Eventually, this seems to have gotten to the brothers, and they got frustrated. They realized nothing was changing fast, and they came to the conclusion that the current situation was untenable. It wasn't a long-term solution to stay in this limbo. They'll simply never get rid of the fighting with Denmark and the internal doubts of their rule, whilst Bielio remains alive and in prison. And armed with this realisation, they head back to Nisherping's house, where their brother has been imprisoned for almost two years at this point. Of course, having been imprisoned for two years and having his closest allies either scared off or killed, King Birger realises that his negotiating position is also rather poor too. If he wants to get out of prison, he pretty much has to agree to whatever the brothers suggest. And that is what he does. Eric and Valdemar present Bia with a treaty to sign that essentially says, 
Hey, Bia, let's forget about the last two years and be friends. You get to rule over whichever bit of Sweden we give you, no matter how small. Here, sign. And he does. He agrees. On the 3rd of March, 1308, he lets his brothers know that he agrees to their terms. And then it takes a few weeks for them to prepare a fancy ceremony to show the people of Sweden that all is now well, even though it's not. And on the 26th of March, they have a big signing ceremony in Örebro. Uh, according to this treaty, Birjo will get to keep the county's Södermanland, Östergötland and Närke, along with control of the island of Gotland and Viborg, all the way over near the eastern border in what is today Russia. Erik and Valdemar gets, well, everything else. Valdemar gets to rule over the territories in modern-day Finland, except for Viborg, and Erik gets all the territories in the west, territories around Lake Mälaren, including Stockholm, and all of the north. So, yeah, he kind of comes out on top. Birger is released from prison, though, and crucially gets to keep calling himself king. And the first thing he does is immediately head to Denmark. <laughs> yeah, no surprise there. He seems to know better than to trust his brother at this stage. Now remember, Birger's wife, Queen Ingeborg, has been imprisoned along with him at Nischöpfingshus, but their son, Magnus, was taken to Denmark directly following the Hortuna Games, so they were probably looking forward to a bit of a family reunion with their son and heir. But with Birger being based in Denmark now, this also means that he can collaborate more closely with his friend and ally, King Eric. Birger isn't the only one who heads to Denmark, so do his brothers. However, they go south for less cosy reasons than a possible family reunion. Even though Birger is now released from prison, by moving to Denmark, this means that the conflict between the Dukes and Denmark is restarted again almost immediately. King Erik and Birger try and take the initiative and having Erik's Danish army they are already marching into Swedish territory. Their goal is to reinstate Birja on the throne properly, not just as this one-third of a king that he is now. If that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's got the rubbish bits and a fort in Russia. <laughs> I mean, that's not nice to all the people of Östergötland and Sörmland to call it rubbish, but he certainly has a much smaller bit than being king for real. Yeah, and it was rubbish back then when you were the king. <laughs> you, yeah. When you're used to having the whole country and you just get these little bits, that's pretty rubbish, regardless of what they were. True. But having clearly read the script in their history books, Dukes Eric and Valdemar are once again ready for the Danish assault, and they take the preemptive action of burning territory where they know they're going to pass through again. This time it's South Halland that gets put to the torch, and the Danes are forced to take a much longer route via the river Lagen. Eventually, the Danish and Swedish armies meet at Birja Church, just north of the small town of Jungby in the county of Småland. However, they're not there to have a, uh, a nice mass together. They're there ready to fight. But 
in the end, it actually never comes to blows again. And there have been so many occasions in this quote-unquote war that have actually never ended in violence. And it's unclear why the two sides don't fight properly this time either. Perhaps on closer consideration, now that King Biryu has been released, the Danes don't think it's worth the effort to lose hundreds of men in a battle that probably won't change much in any case. They were probably hoping to turn up and maybe beat a smaller Swedish army, but realising that they were pretty equal, it may, might not have been worth it after all. And maybe the very aggressive measure of burning South Halland also made the Danes wary of what they might be getting into. If the Swedes started with this action, how hard would they fight later on in a proper war? And either way, on the 2nd of May 1308, they agree to another ceasefire that is to last until the 8th of September 1309, so a little uh, over a year and a half. And they also agree to hold proper peace talks, which should include Norway this time, and that would happen on the 29th of August 1309, so just before the end of the ceasefire. But... Spoiler alert, that never happens, and we'll come back to that soon. For now, this is seen as yet another victory for Dukes Erik and Valdemar's shrewd diplomacy. Again, they get a ceasefire in return for nothing. They're really quite skilled at just buying themselves time. However, they don't really get to enjoy this success for long, because just a few months later, in the summer of 1308, they end up having to fight their old ally Norway, so the tables are turned. The background to this is a situation that has been brewing for a few months now, that resulted in Eric in particular falling foul of his father-in-law, King Håkon. The Norwegians gave Duke Eric the fortress of Kungahella as a gift a couple of years back, but now the Norwegian king wants the fortress back. It is a very strategically located fort, so you could see why King Helcon was keen on it. However, for that very reason, Eric doesn't want to give it up. Eventually, King Helcon has had enough and decides to lay siege to the fort, which he does for five weeks over the summer. There hasn't been a Swedish-Norwegian war for quite a while now, and this is happening despite the marriage alliance between the two. The siege of Kungahela doesn't seem to put too much pressure on the Swedes, though, and in the late summer, King Håkon and Duke Erik's naval forces meet in a battle at sea, at Kalvsund between Ökere and Björke, so outside modern-day Gothenburg. That's better than their naval forces meeting at a battle on land. Yeah, I mean, if, when you have naval forces, you really want to fight on the water. Frustratingly, just like the last 10 years or so, the battle didn't yield any decisive results. Oh, come on. What is going on? <laughs> Although records indicate that Eric's side was the stronger. Wow, big deal. Um, <laughs> even though this might have been a somewhat mini victory for the brothers, or at least another stalemate, in the late summer of 1308, a development outside of their control still has an impact on their situation. 
That is because on the 29th of August, Denmark and Norway make peace. This is particularly damaging for the Dukes, as one reason the Norwegian king was friends with the Dukes was that they were also at war with Denmark. All the time that Norway was at war with Denmark, they could be sure that the Norwegian king would want their support in that war. So this means that Eric and Valdemar's friends list is now quickly thinning. It says, go on there. Yeah. Three friends, and two of them are themselves. Yeah. <laughs> And having lost their alliance with Norway, and Norway making peace with Denmark, and with Birja already being aligned to Denmark, a three-party alliance against the brothers is almost looming on the horizon. Or at least the Norwegian-Danish peace treaty will mean that Denmark can launch a full-scale attack on Sweden if they wanted to, without having to worry about a Norwegian attack round their flank. Yes, and as 1308 becomes 1309, the brothers realize that they must defeat Norway before the ceasefire they've signed with Denmark runs out. Uh, that treaty had bought them time, but it was due to run out in September, and after that they risk having to fight two enemies at once. And so Duke Eric decides to just go all in and launches a full-scale attack on Norway in late winter 1309. He might have had help from Valdemar as well. The sources are unclear. Presumably he did. They seem to do everything together. Either way, Erik decides to split his forces in two and send one marching towards Oslo and the other towards the county of Jämtland, which is nowadays in Sweden but was then Norwegian and pretty much near the northernmost reaches of Sweden at the time. We sadly don't know much about what happened to the force that headed to Jämtland, but we know that the force that headed to Oslo reached the city and captured Akershus fortress. In fact, this is the first time the great Norwegian fortress Akershus is mentioned in a historical record. And it is one of the coolest fortresses ever. I have been there many, many, many times. I can't even count. More than 10 times. Home of the Norwegian Resistance Museum from uh, the Second World War, which is a great museum. It is an excellent museum. And Akkerhus is a cool fortress. Yes, and I know someone who worked there because it's still a fully running military fortress to this day. The military police are based there, among other things. Please go and see it if you're in Oslo. Yeah, definitely recommend a visit. Great view of the city from there as well. Erik's forces also managed to capture Buhus fortress from the Norwegians and engage in a few minor battles in Norway, but eventually they are forced to retreat back to Sweden. King Hakon doesn't just take this attack lying down, he marches into Erik's Swedish territory and attacks Dalsland, but the master at the Dalaboy fortress managed to fight him off. Master of what? Master of the Fortress. Is that the title? It was when I looked it up. Wow, interesting. Mm -hmm. What is it that in Swedish? Mestare. Mestare. Yeah. Wow, okay. It's probably the, gar the garrison commander yeah. or something. But yeah, that's a fun uh, translation for you. And anyway, at the same time all of this is happening, unsurprisingly, Denmark sees their chance to stick it to Erik and Valdemar and attack Smallland in September 1309. Duke Eric's hopes of avoiding a two-front war had utterly failed because he wasn't able to defeat Norway before the peace treaty with Denmark expired. 
This time, knowing one large attack could potentially sort out the situation once and for all, King Eric has gathered the largest army he's ever commanded. And it's very clear now that he's tired of all this chaos and fighting that's going on in Scandinavia. And with two enemies attacking him at once, this very situation that they wanted to avoid, Eric and Valdemar are really on the back foot. Their forces start retreating all over the place and engage in a guerrilla-style war against both Norway and Denmark, but without any decisive victories, probably because they didn't have any guerrillas. <laughs> yeah, Sweden was and, and still is uh, severely lacking in guerrillas. But King Eric of Denmark, on the other hand, is on a roll and gets as far north as Jönköping and then decides to head east and out to the coast. He gets to Nyköping and decides to lay siege to Nyköping's Hus, Duke Eric's sort of home fortress and previous prison of King Birjof. That must have been very cathartic for uh, Birja to have his brother-in-law lay siege to his ex-prison. But uh, this siege also fails to yield any quick results. And the Danish king suddenly starts worrying about the cost of having a large army in Sweden for a prolonged period of time. Especially considering he has to keep sending supplies and uh, keep them fed and all this stuff. It isn't always best to have a huge army around in this time. At the same time, even though there is a bit of a lull in the fighting with Norway in late 1309, Erik and Valdemar are acutely aware that their situation is bleak. At any time, Norway could decide to launch an attack, and the brothers no longer trust that the people in the west of Sweden, which has been their heartland since this whole sorry saga began, will remain loyal to them. After all, some people still want Birjor as king. Indeed, and the fighting between the brothers and between Sweden and their Scandinavian neighbours has been going on or on and off for eight years now. And the people, the noblemen, as well as the farmers and the regular traders and people in the street, so to speak, are understandably growing quite weary of this. And uh, families are tired of their family members dying in this war. Since neither of the parties are interested in prolonging the fight, King Eric and the Dukes reach an agreement whereby King Eric agrees to stop his siege of Nyköpingshus in November and return to Denmark. The agreement might also have included a preliminary partition of Sweden in three, which is sort of already in place, uh, but... That and a plan to hold new peace talks next summer. It's like me doing my university essays. It's just, oh, we'll get around to doing that next year. <laughs> like, we, we, won't, we won't do that just now. Can we just all go home and do something different and talk about this later? Scandinavian political procrastination on a great scale. Indeed. And after this additional ceasefire with Denmark, Eric and Valdemar can once again turn their attention to Norway. In the winter of 1310, they seized Kungahela Fortress from King Hawkon, who had taken it back off Eric after 1308. So this fortress is going backwards and forwards the whole time. Following this latest capture, they send an offer of peace talks to King Hawkon. 
For some reason, King Helcon also seems to think the brothers' forces are a lot larger than they actually are, and thus take their threat to burn down the county of Buusland, which they had threatened to do. He takes this seriously. And also, in general, King Helcon is described as a king who preferred peace to war. Well, I prefer peace to having an entire county burned down as well, I guess. <laughs> yes, and especially after you have been at war on and off for almost 10 years. In the end, on the 12th of March, the two sides reach a ceasefire agreement at Stenhe, which is then confirmed in a peace treaty signed in Oslo 10 days later. Once again, everyone is now at peace with one another. Hooray, finally, again. <laughs> this treaty between uh, the Dukes and Norway includes a lot of fancy wording about friendship and a forever peace. But the main things that happen in actuality is that Duke Eric has to give all of the three fortresses he had in the West uh, back to Norway. So that's Kungahela, Valberg and Hunhals, and that significantly weakens his power base in the area. Yeah, this is a big win for King Hawkon mm. getting all these fortresses. But on the other hand, Eric and Valdemar not only secure a peace treaty, but they also negotiate a new defence alliance with Norway, which is very important in their upcoming negotiations with Denmark. Because Denmark really doesn't want an alliance between Norway and most of Sweden. Because that would weaken their position and essentially put everything back to the way it was just two or three years ago at the start of uh, the latest round of conflict. As we get into the summer of 1310, everyone just seems to have had enough. Björjör, Erik and Valdemar have been fighting for nearly a decade now, and King Erik in Denmark and King Helkon in Norway have been dragged into it due to their various alliances and family ties. War and conflict strains the respective countries' finances, it means they can't focus as much on trade and other foreign policy goals, and perhaps most importantly, it puts a strain on the local population, who suffer from the fighting and general disorder. All of this was arguably as true in the 1300s as it is today. Yes, and it seems like by now all the parties have had enough and are ready to negotiate for real. In July of 1310, all of them, so that's Birger, Eric, and Valdemar from Sweden, and King Eric from Denmark, and King Håkon from Norway, meet in Helsingborg, down in Danish Skåne, to finally negotiate an overarching, comprehensive, long-term peace agreement. Wow, this has been a long time coming. It has indeed. And this meeting in Helsingborg has two aims. First, to find a permanent solution between Birja, Erik and Valdemar on how to rule Sweden. And secondly, which is arguably relying on the first goal to be complete first, is to make peace throughout Scandinavia. Considering they have been fighting for almost a decade, the parties do reach an agreement surprisingly quickly, I must say. Already on the 17th of July, they're ready to sign an agreement. 
maybe it had just been so long in the making that by the time they actually sat down, they had a pretty well-formulated idea of what they wanted or all the other <laughs> options. Options 3,452 before them had all been gone. So there was only one solution available to them, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Anyhow, the peace agreement that they all sign at Helsingborg is a three-state solution. Essentially, it has been made evidently clear that the three Swedish royal brothers can't share and get along. So instead, Sweden will be formally divided in three. For King Birjo, it means that he has gone from initially being king of all of Sweden to being ruler over just a few counties. Erik, with all his ambition and shrewdness, goes from being duke to being all-out ruler of actually most of the country. And baby brother Valdemar, who often comes across as someone who uh, was kind of just along for the ride, well, he gets bits of what we today call Finland. So even though he's been fighting Bioyo just as much, he's clearly a junior in his position compared to Erik. So this is a pretty monumentous thing. Sweden is now split in three. It could be the end of the country. Yeah, Sweden have decided it's too much faff to be Sweden and let's just split up and go our own way. But also, this isn't the people of Sweden saying they want that. It is three brothers who can't get along and eventually that leads to having to partition the country. And so what happens to them then? It's unclear how the three styles themselves now in terms of titles uh, when the country is divided. In history books and other later sources, it is only Bioyo who is called king and Erik and Valdemar are both referred to as dukes even after 1310. But... Sadly, I've been unable to find any sources of sort of what they called themselves now that they are actually ruling over their own bit of Sweden. Or their own country. Yeah. And this agreement also states in quite lofty terms that all shall now be forgiven and forgotten and that Denmark and Norway will now leave the three parts of what was Sweden to get on with their own business. After so much fighting and toing and froing, there is now actual peace. Although it means that Sweden has, in a sense, ceased to exist. It's now three separate nations, which is an odd thing to imagine. It is indeed, but surprisingly, at least in terms of peace, it seems to work. After the summer of 1310 follows actual peace, believe it or not, um, at least for a while. <laughs> yeah, at least for a while. Truer words have never been spoken. But that is a story for another day, or at least for another episode. Indeed. And before we wrap up this episode with Sweden lying on the floor in three bits and everybody wondering what's going to happen next, uh, there's one more story that we uh, want to tell you. Yeah. History is made up of millions of individuals' lives lived out separately, but at the same time. And sometimes one of these millions of individuals does something slightly odd slightly different, 
like the farmer Botulf from the village of Gotröra in the county of Uppland did this year, 1310. Okay, so what did Botulf get up to? Well, Botulf is the only one that history knows of in Sweden that was sentenced for committing heresy. That's exciting. Religious rebel Bultorf. Um, perhaps we should just explain super quickly what heresy is, in case some of our listeners haven't heard of that term maybe in English before. Heresy is defined as holding a belief or opinion that is contrary to the established religious doctrine of the time. Exactly. And that is precisely what Bultorf does. Because Bultorf doesn't believe in transubstination, which is the belief in Catholic Christianity that the wine and bread in Holy Communion actually transforms to the blood and body of Jesus Christ. And Bultorf doesn't just not believe it. He says so out loud and refuses to acknowledge this in church. And this lands him in trouble. Because as we mentioned several times, as we delved into it quite deeply in our episodes on Christianity in the High Middle Ages or law and order in the High Middle Ages, Sweden is a deeply religious country at this point. And moreover, religion is not just something that is practiced in the personal sphere or in the sense of church attendance. It influences every aspect of society and that absolutely includes lawmaking. Uh, we know a fair bit about Bjotulf's case thanks to preserved legal records that have been reviewed and analysed by later historians. It all starts back in 1303. After having denied the transubstination in his local church, Bjotulf's parish priest, Andreas, alerts higher church authorities and Bjotulf is called to a hearing where he admits to the charges. He has said that he does not believe that the bread and wine turns into the body and blood of Christ. But now he's thought about it some more and actually, yeah, now, now he believes it. No, that's a, that's a very convenient change in his story. Maybe he's scared of the church authorities and the possible punishment that's coming his way, or he's not willing to be as outspoken in a setting that's not his own environment. We don't know, but he takes it all back and the archbishop forgives him. But that doesn't mean that it's all well and done. The church authorities need to set an example with Baltolf. If they're seen as being too lenient and not really caring too much about him, letting him get away with it, they risk others getting similar ideas. And in the long run, that means risking losing the stranglehold they have on the Swedish population. So Baltolf is sentenced to exclusion from the parish fellowship for seven years. He might also have been sentenced to some form of public shaming. Sources are less clear on that. But in a world where your very life depended on support and cooperation with your local community, being sentenced to exclusion is hard enough. Bjotulf serves his seven years of exclusion, and in 1310, the year we got up to uh, with our political narrative, uh, he is officially welcomed back in the church, and the new archbishop himself, uh, Archbishop Nils Kjetilsson, comes and gives him the forgiveness for his sins. You'd think that would be it. Case closed, Archbishop approved, but uh, no. Voltov seems to have been an opinionated sort of chap. 
the first time he's back in his local church as a fully-fledged member of the community and about to receive the communion, the priest, quite naturally perhaps, asks him, Well, Bortulf, do you now believe that bread and wine is the body and blood of Christ? To which Bortulf replies, and this is a quote from the court records, No. (laughs) Which is a bit dumb. Uh, If the bread really was the body of Christ, you would have eaten it a long time ago. I don't want to eat the body of Christ. I dearly want to show God obedience, but I just have to do it in a way that's possible for me. If someone could eat another person's body, do you not think that person would avenge it if he could? If that was the case, wouldn't God seek vengeance on us as he has the power to do so for eating the body of Christ? I mean, you could argue that Beotulf raises a valid point. Theological point. (laughs) But considering the context, both the context of medieval Swedish society and Bortol's personal context with his uh, past history and previous sentencing and everything, I imagine the priest's head must have nearly exploded at this point. Yeah. And this time, the church authorities decide they're going to come down on Bortol like a ton of bricks. After all, heresy is bad enough, but repeated heresy and especially premeditated, doing it again when you know the consequences. That shows a rebelliousness that authorities are not willing to let pass. This time, Boltulf is called to the home of the Archbishop and the National Centre of the Church, Uppsala, to explain himself. But he says, no thanks. Wow, he's really taking a much tougher stand this time than back in 1303 when he just apologised and said he changed his mind right away. And so on the 11th of November 1310, he's tracked down by the authorities. He's actually left his home community and is now living in the village of Nertuna in the county of Uppland. There he's arrested and confesses that he said exactly what the parish priest has said that he said. His second trial takes place in Skeptuvna Church. Two church officials, Prior Israel Erlanson and Canon Johannes from the cathedral in Uppsala, interrogate him. Moreover, 13 of Baltol's neighbours are called in to testify. Every single one of them attests that they heard Baltov deny the transubstination several times. Wow, imagine if 13 of our neighbours were called in to hearing about us. I don't think 13 of our neighbours who know who we are. <laughs> exactly, society has changed. Indeed. Bjotulf was clearly closer to his neighbours than we are. Anyway, after the hearing and additional questioning in Uppsala, the archbishop is convinced. Bjotulf is a repeat offender in terms of heresy. The verdict falls on the 8th of April, 1311. Guilty. Yes. Unfortunately, we don't know what happens to Baltimore. It's really frustrating. Uh, Standard practice in Catholic medieval Europe at the time was to take all of his possessions and burn him at the stake. Um, unfortunately, we don't know if that's what happens to the Bulltooth, but you can imagine that it maybe did. We should also mention that there were other cases of heresy in medieval Sweden, but Bulltooth is the only one we know for sure that leads to actual sentencing and a conviction, so to speak. Wow, Bulltooth, a rebel with a course, it seems. The ironic thing is that had he said the exact same things 220 years later, 
after the Reformation, when Sweden had become a Protestant country, he would have been a model Christian in the eyes of the Protestant church because the transubstantiation is one of the things that Protestant Reformation rejects. Yeah, so actually, Bortulf was way ahead of his time. <laughs> yeah. And uh, did he get any, like, statues of him by the Protestant church in Sweden a couple of hundred years later? No, it was very much forgotten about... No, Paid the price for being ahead of his time, he did. He did. And uh, he's also an example of interesting things that happen to everyday people in uh, the midst of all this inter-Scandinavian royal drama as all the kings are fighting each other. Everyday life is still going on and the archbishop is still getting angry with people. Exactly. Uh, In our next episode, we will see if Sweden will continue as three separate nations and if the royal brothers will manage to not fight each other. But for now, we thank you for listening. Don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter. And check out our website where there might even be a new map showing all of these crazy fortress battles and things on them. So hopefully you enjoy that. Hopefully you've had a great Christmas if you celebrate Christmas in wintry Sweden or summery Australia or anywhere in between. Whatever you're doing, have a great 26th of December if you're listening to it on the 26th of December or enjoy whatever day it is when you're listening to this. Oh, that was very nice of you. Bye-bye, everyone. Hey, dog.